Let us pray and ask the Lord to bless the preaching of his words. Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and nearest kinsman redeemer, Jesus Christ, the blessed one of Israel and all the world. Amen. So as we go through this part of the church calendar season, we want to focus our lives onto Christ himself and the work that he did, his life that he led. So right now we're in the Epiphany season, soon to be Lent, Easter tide, and then Pentecost. So we'll be looking at what the Gospels say about the life of Christ. We're going to be taking a little bit of time here today and looking at our Gospel reading from Luke. But we want to consider the right way to understand the passage, and that is in context, to understand what was Luke trying to do, what were his focuses, what was happening leading up to this passage. Too often, people of God, we get into a place where we um, don't really understand what we're reading because we read today's passage without any thought to what was going on beforehand and what is happening afterwards. And if you've been here at the church with me for a while, you might be tired of me saying that. But the truth is, what do we do every day? We get out our Bibles, we read a passage, and we think, wow, what does this passage mean to me? And that's important. That's a good one. And then hopefully you're asking the question, what am I going to do about what it means to me? But we're not really going to understand these things if we don't take a moment and consider the context. If it's an epistle, it's a letter being written to a church. What were the circumstances of the writer to the church? If it's a gospel, who wrote it and who were the intended hearers? And obviously, a simple answer is to say all Christians, right? But I can say something to one of you, and it might have application to someone else, but if you don't know all of the context that's leading into what I'm saying, you're not going to fully appreciate the advice I might give someone. And so, as we consider Luke, I want us to understand that Luke, of course, he's a doctor, he's highly educated. When you look at the way that he wrote and used the Greek, you can see places where he is so clearly tied in to the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And so you understand that he's thinking about that. So when he's looking at the Septuagint, that Greek Old Testament translation, and he's bringing that in to his writings, he's being very careful with it. Again, all of these things that we see with the, with the people of God during the work of Christ and in the beginning stages of the church this didn't come out of nowhere. It was, in fact, based on God's work from creation all the way to the point of Christ. Have no misunderstanding. Do not make the mistake to think that Jesus created the church out of nowhere with no backstory. There's actually no purpose to Christ outside of what happens in Genesis 1 through 3. And there's a story of God's redemption that, is be, that started at the beginning of time 
and is going to be with us and fulfilled completely at the end of time. Luke's main interest is salvation history. What God has done to bring salvation to the world. And that salvation is available to all sinners. There is a focus of Jesus' journey towards Jerusalem and the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. And there's this underlying theme that comes through all of his gospel, and that is the sovereignty of God in the life and death of Jesus. One other important thing of note is to see that Jesus is beginning and developing his, his disciples and working with them and beginning to set the stage in the first half of Luke. And then there's a transition that occurs in chapters 12 and 13 where in the beginning, again, he's, he's selecting his disciples. People are following him. He starts making some distinctions, and we'll see that here today. But beginning in chapters 12 and 13, kind of in the middle of all that, there's a, a shift in what the focus becomes. Jesus continues on preparing his disciples and teaching and training his apostles. But this is the place in chapters 12 and 13 where it shifts and Jesus turns his face towards Jerusalem and the sovereign calling that he has to meet our needs as a sinner and to die on the cross. And so as we go through these passages in Luke over the coming weeks, I pray that the Lord would give us all that understanding that Jesus is preparing himself and preparing us and preparing his people for this mission. If I was going to give a prelude to today's passage, I would say look at Luke chapter 5, because we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 6, a portion of it. And we have to remember, remember, just to tie in the sermon from last week, in Luke 5, beginning in verse 10, it says, And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will catch men. So they went and brought their boats to land, and they forsook all and followed him. And I'm not going to re-preach last week, but remember, he's making this distinction. I'm calling out you three guys, and you are going to be fishers of men. And remember the distinction of, God's people being the ministers and priests to the world, and he's telling them, you need to reorient yourself to the Gentiles, to those that are unbelievers. Remember that all of Israel was called to be the priests to the world. They were to be intercessors and acting as a mediator of God's truth to the world. If we continue on in Luke chapter 5, we see that Jesus cleanses a leopard, beginning in verse 12. And it happened when he was in a certain city that, behold, a man who was full of leprosy saw Jesus, and he fell at his face and implored him, saying, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Then he, that is Jesus, put out his hand and touched him, and saying, I am willing, be cleansed. Immediately the leprosy left him. Now, I know that this man was dealing with a sickness, but it is very important that you understand what leprosy in the Bible is. It is not merely a sickness, but it made a person unclean and unable to go to the house of the Lord and be in fellowship with God. If you had leprosy, you were not allowed into the temple. You were considered unclean. 
what Jesus does with this leper is he says, I'm going to make you able to go to the house of the Lord, worship, and be in fellowship with the living God. Again, if you look in Luke 5, beginning in verse 17, we see that Jesus forgives and heals the paralytic. Now it happened on a certain day as he was teaching that there were Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting by who had come out of every town in Galilee, Judea, and Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was present to heal them. That is to say, to forgive. That's what was there. To heal them from what? From their sins. Verse 25 says this, Immediately he rose up before them, took what he had been lying on, and departed to his own house, glorifying God. You know this story. He's healed. And they were all amazed. You know, it's interesting. This word amazed in the Greek is, is, could be really understood as any casting down of a thing from its proper place or displacement. They did not want to accept that Jesus could forgive sins and to heal people and get them in a place. Again, the lame couldn't go to the house of the Lord. They were not allowed in. They couldn't worship. So yes, Jesus healed a physical body, but he also removed a barrier from them going to the house of the Lord. And this is the narrative that you see. Whether he's doing a miracle to heal a physical ailment or to raise someone from the dead, in every case, that person could then go to the temple and worship God. Again, we see Jesus at work. Not only were they amazed, but it says this again, chapter 5, verse 26, And they glorified God, that is, those hearers, those people around, and were filled with fear. So they gave God glory, but they were filled with fear and saying, We have seen strange things today. By the way, this word strange in Greek is paradoxos, where we get paradox. That's really contrary to expectation. That's what that means. So when they say that they saw strange things today, it was contrary to their expectation. Even if they had some idea that Jesus might in fact be the Messiah, this wasn't what they were expecting him to do. To remove barriers, whether sin or sickness, so that people could go to the house of God. That's not what they were expecting the Messiah to do. To do. Again, we see in Matthew chapter 5, <clears throat> Jesus calls Matthew the tax collector. And it says this And the scribes and the Pharisees complained against his disciples, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them and said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. To repentance. So when he calls Matthew, he goes back to Matthew's house. He gets there. He's eating with publicans. Those are people that are assigned by the government to represent Rome and deal with the people of Israel, tax collectors. Everyone who they thought, no, 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 we're the special people. We're the privileged people of God. You're supposed to be dealing with us. Why are you eating with those people? And Jesus 
says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, do you think he really meant that they were righteous or that those who thought they were righteous? Because the truth is, what man is righteous? Were any of those Pharisees or the publicans and sinners righteous? The answer to that question is no, they were not. Luke 5 finishes with the parable of the old cloth not being able to be fixed to a new cloth. Or as Jesus put it another way, that new wine put in old wineskins. Jesus was casting a vision for a need to change. Not just a small change, but a drastic change. Because that, those parallels right there, you can't put, I'm coming, the change is coming. You can't put the new cloth on the old. It'll tear away. If you don't get that, let me put it to you this way. You can't put new wine in old wineskins. Now, as a guy who at one time worked with wine and worked with grapes, I really understand this. You see, when you make wine and you crush those grapes, it immediately begins fermenting. And when you put it into a tank to make the wine, you put that fermenting juice into the wine, what happens? It begins to let off CO2. And when we first started doing it, before we had a much fancier system, we used to have a line that would come out of the tank and run down into a bucket full of water, right? So that that gas would kind of dissipate and you could kind of see what was happening. Okay, it's really kind of old school here. And the more vigorous <clears throat> the bubbling, the harder at work the yeast was in consuming the sugars. Now we had a large tank with capacity, so the gas was coming off the top, going out the little air line into the bucket of water. And like I said, for the first six or seven days, man, that, it looks like it's boiling. There's so much gas coming out of there. But what would happen if you put something into a leather bag Put that wine in a leather bag. When it's brand new and you put that cork on the top or that stopper on the top, it stretches that wine skin through the pressure. And again, you've got to pay attention even when you're making that in a wine skin that you've got to let the pressure out off of it a little bit. If, if, you, if you've ever been to a winery and you go down and there's barrels, a lot of times the barrels have these little pressure valves in them where it will actually, when it gets too much pressure, rather than putting more pressure on the barrel itself, it will actually push out. Jesus says, there's time for a change because you guys are too stiff and you won't let the Spirit of God, you are resisting God's plan for you, which is to be the ministers to the world. And so we're going to have to get a new cloth. And it's not going to go on the old. In fact, we're going to have to get new wineskins because you're too rigid. You have too much pride. Luke chapter 6 begins with Jesus as Lord of the Sabbath. Remember, it says right there in the beginning of Luke chapter 6 that Jesus and his disciples were walking in the field on the Sabbath day and they were hungry as they were walking through the field 
And it says his disciples grabbed some of the grain, rubbed the grain in their hands so they could eat it, get the chaff off it, they could actually eat the grain. And the Pharisees who were hanging out, they're questioning him, why are you doing this? Why do you let your disciples do this? And it says this in verse 3, But Jesus answering them said, Have you not even read this? What David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he went to the house of God, took and ate the showbread, that is the bread that sits in the tabernacle and the temple in the place of God. And according to God's word, only the priests were to eat that. And he said, And he also, David also gave some of those with him, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat. And he said to them, the Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. You see, they got so caught up in the rules that they weren't practical for the world they were in. They would rather have a bunch of bread stacked up in the temple and have the people starve to death than to give it to them. That's where they were. You see, the Son of Man, Jesus, has authority. The Pharisees and their love for their rules missed the heart of keeping the Sabbath holy. Worship of God must be done the way that he prescribes and not in our simple own constructs. Again, this comes back to what you've heard me say a lot. People of God, beware about worshiping God the way you want to about taking only the parts of God's Word that you want to, that's convenient and comfortable for you, do not worship God on a high place. That is, worshiping God in your own way. But worship God and obey His Word. And here, that brings us to just about where our, our, our uh, text for our reading today begins. But it doesn't just leave it there. It says this, beginning in verse 6. Now it happened on another Sabbath, also that he, that is Jesus, entered a synagogue and taught. And a man there was there whose right hand was withered. So the scribes and the Pharisees watched him closely. Why were they watching him? So they could glorify God or say they could do something? They, were, they wanted to accuse him. It says, whether that he would heal on the Sabbath that they might find an accusation against them. Can you imagine that? Being so set in your ways of having to worship God that you had no compassion for humanity. God created us, people of God, every one of us. You can't say that God doesn't want us to be kind, to care. Here Jesus is sitting there. They, they, I wouldn't even surprise me if they went out and found a guy with a problem with that withered hand and drug him in there just to try to set him up so they could accuse him. They were lost in their view. And it says this in verse 8, But he, that is Jesus, knew their thoughts and said to the man who had the withered hand, Arise and stand here. Jesus is like, you're going to have to get over this because I'm going to bring this guy up in the front. And he arose and stood, and then Jesus said to him, I will ask you one thing. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save a life or to destroy? And when he had looked around at them all, he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. 
And he did so. And his hand was restored as whole as the other. And what did the Pharisees do? In verse 11, But they were filled with rage and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. Can you imagine being so rigid in your view, so prideful that you had God's truth, that you would, did not want to be kind and care for people? People of God, we need to guard ourselves in this way. The people of Israel and their leaders had disqualified themselves. This is why the judgment is coming. And why God is going to take away this blessing. And he takes a few and he establishes the new Israel. Again, we're not quite there. This is all the setup now. It says this in verse 12 of chapter 6. Now it came to pass in those days that he, that is Jesus, went out on the mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. And when it was day, he called his disciples to himself, and from them he chose the twelve whom he also named apostles. Now this reminds us of a couple of things. And of course, he lists out the apostles here in this passage. But I want us to understand something. When we look back to when the people of God, Israel, was set up as the covenant people of God, formally, not just God's promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, where was that? At a mountain. What happened? Moses went up on a mountain and spent time with God. And he came down and God established his covenant. Here we see Jesus up on a mountain praying, and then he comes down and he selects some of the disciples to be his apostles. How many apostles were there? Children. How many apostles were there? Speak it out. Twelve. That's right. Twelve. How many tribes of Israel were there? Twelve. God is establishing the new covenant of people with those apostles. This is really important. Remember this, that an apostle, that Greek word, means a delegate, a messenger, one sent forth with orders. People of God, we need to understand that we are the church and that we have been selected by God. We have been given orders to be fruitful, multiply, take dominion, to make disciples of all the nations, teaching them all that I have commanded. This, in fact is the lens with which to read and understand our lectionary reading today. First of all, if we look at beginning in verse 17, <clears throat> let us consider this. And he, that is Jesus, came down to them. So this is after he selects the disciples. It says this, He came down to them and stood on a level place with the crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all of Judea and Jerusalem, and from the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and be healed of their diseases. <clears throat> now I'm going to pause just for a second. Here's something very important. Remember, when you think about the imagery of the Old Testament, right? You have the garden, the land, and the ends of the earth. When you have the temple, you have the place of worship. That's the garden. You have the land, that's the courtyard, 
you have the ends of the earth that's outside the gate. And here, Jesus calls his, he was up on the mountain, comes down, calls his disciples, and then what does he do? He says he went out on a plane, a level place, and he begins to teach. He went from the place with God, called his disciples, covenant people, and now they're in the land, and everything he does from this point forward is moving them towards the gate of the temple. His death and resurrection and evangelizing and making disciples of the entire world. That's the thrust of where we're going. And what do we see? The crowd of people from Judea and Jerusalem. And where, from where else? Tyre and Sidon. We're getting all the way up to the sea. Jesus is putting the vision out there. We're going all the way to the sea, people. And why did they come? To hear Jesus and to have their diseases healed. Why? So they could go into the temple. And what does it also say? As well as those who were tormented with unclean spirits. That is, those who were vexed and troubled by demons. And again, unclean spirits. You think about this. In a ceremonial sense, it's that which must be abstained from in the ceremonial law. If they have unclean anything, they can't go into the temple. Jesus is there to deliver people so that they can be in fellowship with the Almighty. That is the gospel message. And what does it say? And they were healed. The whole multitude. That word multitude in that place means common people. And that is in direct correlation or really direct saying, nope, I've got the common people, not these leaders who think they're all that. Not the ones filled with pride and self-righteousness. And it says that they sought to touch, that is to cling to Jesus. For his power went out from him. And what does it say? This is really important. What does it say? And, his, uh, and it went out from him and healed them all. Not some of them. He healed them all. Delivered them from their sin and all those things that were keeping them from being in fellowship with God. He healed them all. Took all the barriers away for all people. They came to hear Jesus, to be healed by Jesus, to be restored by Jesus. And this is what brings us to the blessings a lot of times this passage is associated with Beatitudes, which is, if you look at Webster's 1828 dictionary using very biblical language, it defines it as this way. What is a blessing? It's the joys of heaven. It's a declaration of the blessedness made by our Savior to particular virtues. Can you imagine reading that in a dictionary today? When you see the word blessings, the joys of heaven, the declarations of the blessedness made by our Savior to particular virtues? That sounds like crazy talk. So remember, this is where we're at, where he begins to talk about this, and he says this, And he, that is Jesus, lifted his eyes towards his disciples. That is not unlike the wave offering, or really this word wave offering in the Old Testament is the lifting up. You take it and present it to God. That's what's happening there. And he's speaking to his disciples, and he says this to them. Blessed are you poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Now, here's what. We hear this, and we think, oh, God's talking about economics. 
I don't think that it is exclusively economics. As a matter of fact, I don't think it's the main thrust when we look at the context here. He says, think about this. Blessed, happier are you because of the joys of heaven. Right? If we use that. Okay? You're poor. That is destitute of wealth. More importantly, of influence and position and honor. God was calling not those that were self-righteous, but the common person and saying, I'm establishing my kingdom and you are blessed. You are happy because of the joys of heaven, even though you don't have wealth or influence or position and power. He says this, for yours is the kingdom of God. What does that yours mean? That is to be possessed. That is allocated from God, proceeding from God. God is at work. Verse 21, Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be filled. What does it mean to be hunger? It is to crave ardently, to seek with eager desire. If you are seeking God with an eager desire, just as those disciples and apostles were, he's saying, now you shall be filled. That is, your desires will be satisfied. But remember this context. He's re, he is establishing the church here. Blessed are you who weep. Weeping is the sign of pain and grief. Because if you weep, you for you shall laugh. Laughing is a sign of joy. And here's the thing, satisfaction. Now we think laughing is just laughing because something funny happens. But it's really, can someone who is full of, of just hatred. Do they really laugh? No, because they're not in contentment. They're not filled to satisfaction. And look, look, look what it says. Because see, look at this context. It sets this up, talking about these blessings. And it says, Blessed are you when men hate you. That is, to pursue with hate, to, be, to, to detest you. And when they exclude you, that is, to mark off from others to separate you and revile you and cast you out. There's this clear thing that this is what's coming, but that's okay because the Lord Jesus, by the sovereign work of God, has allocated the kingdom of God to you. And he says this, and when they cast you out, what are they casting out? They're casting out, they're depriving people of power and influence that they think they're exercising and that they have in the world. When they cast you out and cast your name as evil for the, for the Son of Man's sake, that is on account of Jesus, it says this in verse 23, Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. That is skipping happily. For indeed your reward, that is all of the work from your toil, and this is important, people of God, your vocation. You know what we often do when we come up and we meet someone, we shake their hand, and somewhere in the first couple of minutes, particularly for men, we ask this question, what do you do for a living? Right? We are determining who we are and what we're called to do in this world by what earns us money. Instead of saying, I belong to God, I have union with Christ, I have a vocation in Him, and everything else I do emanates from that.
he finishes this by saying, For in like manner their fathers did to the prophets. What is he talking about? Think about this in 1 Kings chapter 18. Ahab and Jezebel, how they murdered the prophets. How Nehemiah 9 references the killing of all the prophets. Jeremiah 38 talks about how the officials, the priests and the leaders of Israel wanted to kill Jeremiah because he was teaching the truth. In Luke 13, you know, that's a transition. He's going to turn his face to Jerusalem and go. In Luke 13, Jesus proclaims judgment on Jerusalem because of their murdering of the prophets, including John the Baptist. But it doesn't end there because we see in Revelation 16 the judgment of Israel and the final closing of Israel in the Old Covenant. Remember, people of God, Revelation is about the closing of the Old Covenant, the destruction of the way to worship God at the temple and to worship God through Jesus Christ. And Revelation 16 tells us this, Then the third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel of the water saying, You are righteous, O Lord, the one who is and was and is to be, because you have judged these things. For they have shed the blood of the saints and the prophets, and you have given them blood to drink, for this is their just due. All of this sets up coming to the curses. It says this, back to Luke chapter 6, verse 24, but, and remember the but is rather than speaking to the Pharisees and the and he's speaking to the Pharisees and the priests, not to his disciples. He says, Woe to you who are rich, those who are abundantly supplied, who have the power, who have the ability to point the people to God. For you have received your consolation. Now, when you look at that word consolation, you think, oh, you get some kind of comfort. But really, a consolation in biblical language is a summons and an admonition. You are being summoned before God and being corrected right here. I promise you this, if any of those people, and we know some of the Pharisees came to know Christ, Paul being one of them. But there are other examples as well where the leaders do repent. Are they going to receive the admonition when they are summoned before God? He says this, Jesus goes on and says, Woe to you who are full. That is, to be a glutton of your own desire. Woe to you, for you shall hunger. You're going to suffer want. Woe to you who laugh. It's interesting, in this case, it's of uncertain contract in marriage or covenant. They laugh because they feel like they have the covenant, but it's woe to you. For you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you. What did people do? They dressed finely. They would get praise. They would be doing all kinds of things. Everybody knew who the Pharisees were, who the priests were. They could pick them out. Jesus is speaking judgment to them. And when people speak well of you, for so did their fathers to the false prophets. He's saying, you know what? People spoke well of the false prophets. That is who you are. 
Think of this in Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 14, it says this, Also I, that is Yahweh, have seen a horrible thing in the prophets of Jerusalem. They commit adultery and walk in lies. They also strengthen the hand of evildoers. Think about this. When we come to the end of Jesus' life, what do the high priests and the leaders of Israel do? They do a mock trial and they pay people to bear false witness. They pay people to betray Jesus. They are... As this passage describes, they strengthen the hand of evildoers. They're paying people to do evil so that no one turns back from his wickedness. They want to cling to their power so much that they want to see people perish and go to hell. People of God, we need to be warned about not being prideful. And he says this, God goes on to say in his judgment, all of them, that is, these leaders, are like Sodom to me and their inhabitants like Gomorrah. They are so wicked, destruction is going to fall upon them. Don't be self-righteous. Be humble. Know that Jesus has saved you by his sovereign work in your life. Be humble. We also need to take this warning about false prophets. People that say things that make us feel good and included and we're all warm fuzzies beware of false prophets second timothy chapter 4 verse 3 says this for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine but according to their own desires because they have itching ears they will heap up for themselves teachers and they will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to fables but you be watchful in all things endure afflictions do the work of evangelists and fulfill your ministry remember god is calling his people He's calling his disciples, he's calling his apostles, he's establishing the church. And Paul here is reiterating, be careful, don't get caught up in false prophets because they're trying to destroy the world and destroy people. Romans 16, beginning with verse 17, reminds us of this. Now I urge you, brethren, note that those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learned and avoid them. For those who are such do not serve the Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly. That is, they're doing these things so that they can profit. By smooth words and flattering speech, telling people what they want to hear, they deceive the hearts of the simple. For your obedience has come, become known to all. Therefore I am glad on your behalf, but I want you to be wise in what is good and simple concerning evil. And the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. Remember, when Paul writes this in Romans, it is not far off, just a few years, where God is going to use Rome to destroy the temple and close the old covenant completely. And he says this, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Now, we can say all these things. What does this matter to us? I've, I've riled us up a little bit. I've pointed out some things. Maybe I'm the only one riled up. I don't know. But I'll say this, what's the point of all this? People of God, remember your vocation. Why were you created? Adam was not created to be a homo sapien, but to be a homo adorian, that is, worshiping man. His first and most important purpose was to worship the Father and the Son and the Spirit. In Matthew 16, verse 15, it says this, He, that is Jesus, said to them, But who do you say I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son 
of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. We are called to make disciples. When he established the church, we are the church. You are called to make disciples, to teach one another, to teach your children, to teach your husband, to teach your wife, to teach the other people in this church, in this community. Sunday is not enough for it. You've got to do it every day. Is your vocation simply how you make your money, or is your vocation God's calling to you? Let us consider, in closing, Matthew 28, beginning with verse 16. Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee to a mountain, which Jesus had appointed them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, This is important. All authority has been given to me on heaven and earth. Not someday, but right now. Jesus is Lord already, and that authority he has. Go, because he has this authority, go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And that is the end of all time. And that book finishes with the word amen. So be it. We need to be the hands and feet of our loving triune God to the broken and hopeless world. When the world says they don't know what to do with their guilt and shame, we need to say we do know what to do. Point them, lead them, go with them to Christ. Christ has come to take guilt and shame away. Christ has come to bring light, life, and forgiveness and restoration to the lost. We are to be beacons of His light and truth as His, this is important, humble servants. We are the church, the new covenant people of the living God, the priests to the world. Please pray with me. Father, we do thank you for the gift of Christ, who is the one from whom life is found. We thank you for Christ's forgiveness that he brings, taking away our guilt and shame. Father, we know we are a broken people living in a broken culture. Make us whole through Christ and use us to bring others to wholeness in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.